Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to look today, beginning in chapter 7 and then move back to chapter 5. We started this series in the life of Christ back in September, and we've been following Jesus' journey all the way, we will, to the cross. The purpose of our study has simply been this, very straightforward. We want to know Jesus intimately. Don't you want to do that? Know Jesus intimately. We want to love Jesus passionately. We want to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. The ministry of Jesus on earth was about three and a half years, his public ministry. And it can be divided roughly into these three years. First was the year of inauguration. That was when Jesus was baptized. We saw him going into the desert to be tempted. We saw as he chose his disciples. He's just getting his ministry started. Followed by the year of popularity. People are hearing his teaching. No one taught with the authority that Jesus did. They're seeing his healings. No one was like Jesus. He fed 5,000 people plus the women and children with a small lunch. Years of popularity. We're now in the last year, the year of opposition, and that is the year that Jesus is making his way to the cross. And the opposition is cranking up, we see in John 7, look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went around Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. When he makes his last trip to Jerusalem, it will indeed be his last trip. And so Jesus was staying in the northern part of Israel. Israel is not a big country, about 60 miles wide at its widest spot, about 120 miles long, fits inside of the state of New Jersey. Jesus stayed most of the time. In fact, two of his three and a half years were up in that area in Galilee. His headquarters was Capernaum, a lot of miracles around the Sea of Galilee. And three times a year, a Jewish a person who was, who was a religious Jew would make their way down to Jerusalem. And so Jesus would go here by the Sea of Galilee, cross over, would not go in Samaria. We've talked about that in earlier messages, and then go down to Jerusalem. There were a lot of feasts that the Israelites celebrated, but there were three mandatory feasts, and these mandatory feasts required that they go to Jerusalem. The first feast was the Passover. This is when they remembered that God had delivered them from Egypt, and they thanked God for that. Their first month, our March and April. The second mandatory feast going down to Jerusalem was Pentecost. This was when they celebrated the, the first fruits of the harvest, and they would go down to Jerusalem. Their third month, our May and June. Chapter 7, we're going to see the Feast of the Tabernacles, our seventh month, uh, their seventh month, September, October for us. And the Feast of the Tabernacles had two uh, purposes. One was a thanksgiving for the harvest that was coming in during that time. So they always were thanking God for the things he was doing at that time. But there was another reason they called it the Feast of Weeks or Feast of the Tabernacles. In the Old Testament, when uh, Israelites were in the desert wanderings, when the cloud, the Shekinah glory, when God was in that cloud leading them through the desert and he would stop. Uh, sometimes he would stop just for a little while, sometimes for a long period of time. And when it was a long period of time, they would build uh, shelters with sticks and, 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 and leafy uh, plants to cover. And that's where they would stay, in these shelters or in these tabernacles. And so when Israel celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they would go in Jerusalem and they would actually build these little uh, leafy 
tents or shelters or tabernacles and they would stay there. So the tabernacles, they were remembering the present harvest, but they were also remembering the past provisions that God had given them. Now we've just seen in chapter uh, seven, verse one, that there was a lot of opposition uh, to Jesus from without, but there was also a lot of opposition in his own home. Check this out, look at verse two. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus's brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and you ought to go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to be, hear the sarcasm here, no one who wants to be a public figure like you do acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. For Jesus, the rejection was not only on the outside, but it was on the inside as well. Something had just happened uh, that the brothers may be speaking to. Uh, Jesus, in the end of chapter 6 in John, had, had taught some very hard teaching. He taught people, if you really want to follow me, you, you have to be all in. Uh, it was the passage where he talked about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He didn't mean that literally, but he said, you got you to take me in. You got to be all in. And you remember what a lot of the disciples following Jesus said, that's kind of hard. I don't know if we want to do that. So a lot of disciples following Jesus at that time left. The 12 stayed. And so the, and the brothers may be saying here, you've lost a lot of disciples. You're stuck with these 12 losers. Why don't you go to Jerusalem, do your miracles there, and those disciples you lost, you may rally them. They may come back and follow you. Even his brothers did not believe in him. You thought you had family problems, right? Jesus understands. Jesus did not travel with his family down to Jerusalem, but he did go. The first uh, three days during this week-long uh, feast, he stayed kind of incognito. And then on the fourth day, in the middle of the feast, he went to the tabernacle and he began to teach. And as always, when Jesus taught, he drew a crowd. And as always, there was emotional reaction. Some people believed in him. He's the Messiah. He's the one we want to follow. Some people remained on the fence. For the religious leaders, it was another reason it was another reason to put him on the cross. John chapter seven, verse 30, they, the religious reader, leaders, tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because what? His time had not yet come. No one was gonna lay a hand on him until Jesus voluntarily, on his own, not as a victim, voluntarily went to the cross. Now, in this dialogue between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, we discover what was the tipping point for the opposition to start. Look at verse 21, chapter seven. Uh, earlier, Jesus has said, why are you trying to kill me? And the religious leader said, you're demon possessed. The crowd answered, who's trying to kill you? They were not going to admit it publicly. And then Jesus said this, verse 21, I did one miracle and you were all astonished. I did this one miracle and now you're after me. I did this one thing, and now you're trying to put me on the cross. Now, what was that one miracle? What was that, that tipping point that caused them to say, 
We're going to kill him. Go back to chapter 5, John chapter 5. And here's what we want to do today. We want to consider, in the rest of our time, let's consider this, this miracle, and then we'll make some, some, some personal application, I think some pertinent application from the story. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Uh, most, com- or many commentators think this was the Passover feast, So what's happening in John chapter 5 is about six months before what happened in John uh, chapter 7. Jesus goes up to the feast, and look at verse 2. Now there uh, is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. So here's this pool of Bethesda. And the the legend was that an angel would come down and stir the waters at a certain time. And and all the uh, disabled people would gather around. And when the angel stirred the waters, if you could be the first one in the pool, after the angels stirred the water, you would be healed. That was the legend. That was a cruel myth for those people who were disabled. Nevertheless, these large crowds gathered at the pool. And one in the area that day was this man who had been sick for 38 years. Again, look at verse uh, five. One who had been an invalid for 30 years. That word invalid doesn't really tell us exactly what was the matter with him. The word means uh, weakness, disease, or sickness. We only know that this man had been lying down on a mat for almost four decades. That's a long time to be down, isn't it? Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, and Jesus must have asked some questions about him. Who is he? How long has he been there? He learned that he had been in that condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Sounds like a strange question, doesn't it? I'll come back to that in a second. Look at verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water's stirred. And, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else always goes in before me. Then Jesus said to him, well, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. Great miracle, right? But for the Jewish leaders, great miracle, wrong day. Look at the next, last part of verse 9. The day on which this took place was what? Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders had all kinds of laws regarding what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And when they saw that man walking down the road carrying his mat... They didn't care if he had been an invalid for 40 years, 60 years, or 100 years. He was breaking the Sabbath, and they said, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing carrying that mat? You know better than to carry your mat on the Sabbath. You cannot do that. You know the laws. You're breaking the law. Look what the man said in verse 11. He replied, the man who made me well said to me, it's his fault, pick up your mat and walk. Now, at this point, The man doesn't even know who Jesus is. This is an interesting miracle. The man did not ask to be healed. The man was not seeking Jesus in any way. He didn't have an earthly idea who Jesus even was. 
Look at verse 12. So they asked him, who is the fellow who told you to pick, up, pick it up and walk? And the man said, he who healed me, the man who, who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. He didn't even know who, who healed him. Later, he learned. And as soon as he learned, instead of thanking Jesus, he went back and told the Jewish officials. And so they're, they're now after Jesus. Look at verse 6. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work, Sabbath or no. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Now check this out. This is a tipping point. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath. That became secondary now. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And the, and the opposition begins and will stay there all the way to the cross. Let's go back and look at this um, story. And what I want to do is to draw out some specific application. And I want to start with the question that Jesus asks the invalid. Look at verse 6, chapter 5. When Jesus saw him lying there, checked out the progression, and learned, so he asked some questions, and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now remember, the man was not seeking Jesus, didn't even know who Jesus was, lying on a mat 38 years Jesus initiates the encounter and asks this question. And I believe what Jesus is saying after he inquired and find this guy had been on a mat for a long time. Do you really want to get well? Do you desire to get well? Inherent in the question, I believe, is are you satisfied just lying there on a mat? Are you satisfied with your back? on the ground? Do you, do you even want to get well? So when I was in third grade, my brother thought I should be involved in the sport of wrestling. It was a popular little sport. Uh, it was a popular sport in our little hometown. In fact, you probably already know this. I'm sure you do that Perry, Oklahoma, where I grew up is called the wrestling capital of the world. Did anyone know that? <laughs> anyone care? It's a real question. They've won, they've won the state championship for 40 years. This year, I think, was number 41. They were pegged to win it. The program started when you were a fifth grader. I was in the third grade, but my brother had connections with the coach. So lucky me, right? So we had built a new school, the high school, built a new school, and there was an old high school, and we were using one of the old high school rooms to practice. They had put a mat on one of the classrooms and we would run and, and, and we would sweat and we would learn holds and we would learn moves. And then we would, to close the day, about the last 30 minutes, we would wrestle with another person, our weight and size. And I was doing fine. I was holding my own until one fateful Friday, my partner didn't show up. 
And I looked around the room to figure out who I was going to wrestle. And I saw on the other side of the room, another guy who didn't have a partner, the only guy in the room who didn't have a partner, a guy named George. George uh, was in the fifth grade for the second or third time. <laughs> George shaved. George was bigger than me. And it was a known fact that you didn't mess with George. He was mean. And when he saw that I was without a partner, a smile broke out on his face. And I knew I was in some deep, deep trouble. My heart sunk as George walked my way. The next 30 minutes became a vivid memory in my life. My lip was busted in several places. My back was pinned to the mat several times. My little ego was severely wounded. I don't even know if I've recovered to this day. <laughs> These decades later, I remember getting up from my most recent pinning, because you got a little break after you got pinned, walking over to a combination sink water fountain, spitting blood into the sink, getting a drink and saying, oh boy, I get to go out there and do that again. George, this half man, half animal, is going to pin me repeatedly until this practice is over. And I spent most of that day with my back to the mat, totally defeated. And I'd go over to that water fountain knowing that I was going to go back out there and get beat again. Spiritually speaking, I spent a lot of time at that combination water fountain sink, spitting blood with a busted lip from my last spiritual defeat. Sometimes thinking, I'm going to go right back out there and get beat again. Let me ask you a question. What is the spiritual opponent that continues to pin you, that continues to defeat you? What is it that always gets the best of you? Who's the enemy that always keeps you down? Is it possible that you have stopped battling? Is it possible that your heart's just not in the fight anymore? Now, I'm not talking about salvation. You're a believer. If you're a believer, if you trusted in Christ, you have been justified. You have depended on the work of Jesus Christ alone to put you in a relationship with God. And when you trust in Jesus, you stand before God, the judge, and he says, not guilty. Your sins have been paid for by my son's death on the cross. He bore your sins in his body on the cross. Not guilty. And you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That never changes. You are secure in Jesus Christ. But when that happens, when we're justified, that doesn't mean our sinful nature is eradicated. We still have it plugged in. And we have times when we slip into the things we really 
desire to do and want to do. And so as a believer, that's where the battle comes in. If someone told you when you become a believer, that's the battle's over, they told you the wrong thing. That's when the battle begins. As a believer, you now have a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let me ask you that question again. What is it that keeps you down as a child of God? See, here I believe Jesus is asking the question to this man, do you even care about getting up? Do you desire to get up? Do you have a resolve to get up? I mean, 38 years is a long time to be on the mat. When Jesus asked, do you want to get well? I believe he's asking us, spiritually speaking, that same question. Do you? Maybe you're spiritually paralyzed. Maybe you're spiritually stagnant. Maybe you're spiritually stalled, a sin or a series of sin or a life of sin. It's keeping you down on the mat. And you, and you have lost your desire to get up. You just said it's easier to stay down. I'm going to get beat again. George is going to pin me again. Satan's going to pin me again. I'm going to give in to the flesh again. It's just easier, isn't it? To stay down. Isn't it? Really? Easier to stay down. Let me give you three things. I believe reduce many believers to a life of, of being down on the mat, of ineffectiveness. Christians with their backs to the mat. See if any of these resonate with you. The first one is the mat of personal excuses. Some people have a real hard time owning their spiritual condition. It's always someone else's issue. If it wasn't for my wife, if it wasn't for my husband, if it wasn't for my kids, if it wasn't for my employer, if it wasn't for my employees, man, I'd really be walking. If I wasn't so busy, if this job didn't take so much of my time, then I really, I would really get on fire for Christ. But you see, I got these things going on in my life. It's always someone else's issue. Some people have a hard time saying, no, the spiritual life is my issue. If my back's on the mat, I got to get up. Philippians chapter four. Verses 12 and 13, Paul said this. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. Check that out. Paul, Paul said, I, am, I wasn't born knowing that. I didn't know that the first day I became a Christian. Because of the things God has taken me through, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether having plenty or want, I can do what? I can get up off the mat because of the one who gives me strength. Jesus Christ who lives within me through his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit can pick me up. I do not have to stay on the mat of personal excuses. I have to own this is my life. And if my back's on the mat by the power of the Holy Spirit, I got to get up. Some people have a hard time with that because if you admit it's your problem, 
then what? What do you have to admit? I got a problem. And we don't want to admit that. Second thing, the mat of sins. The mat of sins. Again, we're justified. We're a child of God that can never change. Been a child of God since eternity past. He brought you to himself. You're his. And we still have that sin nature. And so we're going to sin. We don't have to sin because the Holy Spirit is living within us. But sometimes because we would rather go our way, do our thing, instead of depending on the Spirit, we sin. And so when we sin, we need to confess our sins. But if we don't confess our sins, those sins kind of dull being down on the mat. If you're a believer and you know you're living in sin and you're not convicted by it, that's a problem. You've been on the mat so long, you don't even care anymore. Two parts of unconfessed sin. First of all, confession. I own my sin and I'm sorry for my sin. Hey, the first thing we ask when, it, when it, a guy falls into adultery and we confront him and meet with him, we ask this question. Are you sorry you got caught? Or are you sorry you sinned against the eternal God, your heavenly father, and your wife and family? It's always an interesting conversation. Confession says, I own my sin and I'm sorry for it. I have sinned against God. And repentance says, I want to stop. I don't want to keep doing this. I don't want to stay down on the mat. I, I want to live a life that pleases God. I want to move from this. I want to get up again and get up from the mat. Psalm 32, verses 2 through 5. Listen to David. As David has sinned, and he's feeling the conviction of sin. And then he feels the relief when God forgives him. Listen to this. Blessed is the man, David says, whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. David says, when I kept silent, when my sins were unconfessed, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as the heat of the summer. That's conviction. Then I acknowledged my sin. I confessed my sin and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I own it. My fault. I'm sorry. Don't want to stay here. Want to move from this. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me. Hear the relief? The guilt of my sin. So if you're living with unconfessed sin, confess and repent and get up off the mat. There are also sins of inclination. I don't know all the reasons. May have been your background. May have been just how you're wired. I don't know. But each of every one of us here, we have an area of our life that dogs us. You have a different area than mine. I got mine. And so someone will say, you know what? I am never tempted by that. And I'll say, man, that tempts me every second. And then I'm not tempted by that, but that tempts somebody else. All of us have sins of inclination. These are ongoing temptations. Now, temptation's not a sin. Jesus was tempted. It's a sin when you give in to it. And these ongoing temptations are like a chronic back pain. They never quite go away. They, they include everything from a sharp tongue that leaves people reeling in your wake to a quick temper that blows everything up around you 
to sexual sins, including wandering eye, pornography, promiscuity, homosexuality, and adultery, inclinations. There are inclinations that some people have more than others to chemical addictions, stretching the truth, undisciplined spending, the list goes on. Every one of us have weak areas of temptation. That's the battle. That's where the battle is. And so these things are going on within us. Sometimes they come from our flesh. We just want it. Sometimes Satan, because he is a student of us, he's not, a, he's not omniscient, but he's a student of us. And so he puts that temptation at every corner, hits us at every turn. We are in a constant battle with the sins of inclination. Temptation is not a sin. Giving in is. And we cannot let the sins of inclination get the better of us. We can't let them keep us down on the mat. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says in verse 5, put to death, old word mortify, mortify the sins of the flesh. Put them to death. You're going to battle with them. You're like a battle. You have a sword and the enemy is coming at you. Go at it. Fight them. Put it to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these things. See, you used to, these things used to characterize your life. Before you were a believer, there was no battle. You gave in. There's no battle when you give in to these things, right? But now it's different. You used to walk in these things, but now you must rid yourself. You must battle with such things as anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and you put on the new self, which is uh, being renewed in, in, in knowledge and the image of its creator. Can't stay down on the mat. Do the battle with the sins of inclination. And you say, look, I tried that, but I have failed so many times. I'm ashamed to go back and tell God, here it is again. So all of us have been there. And so if you stay there, you're going to live defeated the rest of your life. So by God's strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you as a believer, you've got to get up. And you've got to say, God, I know I've been here a hundred times with this sin, and here I am again. You're the only one who can forgive me. You're the only one who can take away the guilt. And you're the only one who can help me live in obedience and battle this thing and win. At least win more than I'm losing. And so after a while, you do win more than you lose. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives you that strength. Here's the last one. The mat of failure. Again, we, we, we keep on sinning, right? And we put to death, we mortify those earthly desires. But we're still going to sin. If any man says he has no sin, John, 1 John says he's a liar and the truth isn't in him. The issue is, how are we going to deal with the failure? Will we confess it? Will we repent? Or will we give up? And just stay on the mat. That's where some of you are. I'm done. 
I'm tired of fighting the battle. I'm tired. I've been beaten so many times. It's not worth it anymore. Why do I want to get up and have George pin me again? Why do I want to get up and have this sin beat me again? I've read the books. I've prayed. I'm going to get beat again. I give up. So you're just going to stay down on the mat. A few years ago, John Piper spoke to some college students at a conference in Atlanta called the Passion Conference. And he addressed the issue of the danger, the danger of staying, of allowing sin and failure to keep you down. The danger of saying it's not worth getting up. The danger of saying, oh, I just think I'm going to be, get beat again if I get back up. Listen to what he says. John Piper talking to college students. The great tragedy is not mainly being defeated by sin. That's not mainly the great tragedy. The tragedy is that Satan uses the guilt of these failures to strip you of every radical dream you ever had or might have and in its place give you a happy, safe, secure American life of superficial pleasures until you die in your lakeside rocking chair, wrinkled and useless, leaving a big fat inheritance to your middle-aged children to confirm them in their worldliness. That's the main tragedy. It's true, isn't it? That's the tragedy. Some of you have been comfortable, have become comfortable in your defeat. And you're going to let your failure rob you of every radical dream of making an impact for Christ. Rob you of your marriage. Rob you of relationship with children. Rob you of the, of the plan that God has for you. Rob you of making your business one that is a light for Jesus Christ. Every radical dream you had, because you know what? God can't use me. And I failed so many times. You know what? I know I'm going to heaven. I got that covered. So I'll just do this, you know, American life, make the money. I'll probably give some away. But I'll just, you know, rationalize a life of superficial pleasures, lakeside rocking chair, leaving an inheritance, leaving a big fat inheritance to my kids instead of a godly legacy. That's the tragedy. So Satan has pinned you to the mat. That's the bad news. You know what? That's the realistic news. That's the fact, all of us. Now, the good news is this. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to stay down. The Holy Spirit lives in us. We have everything. We have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ living in us. It doesn't matter who's on top of you. It doesn't matter how many times you've failed. Today is the day you can get up off the mat. And my challenge to you is to get up off the mat and reclaim those radical dreams that God gave you before you gave them up because of failure. Let me end with Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. The prophet says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear God's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me into the light and I will see his righteousness. Man, that's a powerful passage, isn't it? 
Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Satan, you are my enemy. You delight in my failure. You want me to stay down. But if you think I'm going to stay down on a mat, think again. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Yeah, I've fallen, but I'm not going to stay down on a mat. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to get up. I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Yeah, sin makes me guilty. It makes me feel guilty. It's called conviction. But because of grace, I will not stay in the darkness of guilt. The Lord is my light. I'm going to get up. Because I've sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out, of the, out, of, uh, out into the light and I will see his righteousness. Yes, I've sinned and God disciplines those he loves. But the very one who disciplines me pleads my case and establishes my right. He will pick me up off the mat and bring me out into the light. So here's my question to you. Are you satisfied? By staying down on a mat. Is that where you want to live your Christian life? Is that what you want to do? Jettison all your dreams and live your great American life, doing all your stuff, leaving an inheritance instead of a legacy. It's time to get up. It's time to do the thing that God has called you to do. And I don't know what it is, but you do. And it is gnawing at you. And you know you can't do it on the mat. So today I'm going to ask you to get up off the mat and drive this thing home that by the power of God within you, the Holy Spirit, you are going to rise. Pastoral staff and elders, if you guys will come down at this time, you men and women, we want to be here to pray for you. Kirk is going to lead us in a last song. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask that no one leaves. Service isn't over and we're going to stand and sing together. If God leads you to come forward during the song, please do that. You say, well, if I come forward during the song and pray with someone, someone might think I have something to pray about. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's what they'll think because that's the truth. But sometimes you have to get off the mat. You have to make a statement. And so if you want to come and pray, do that. Pray with us during or after the song. Father, do your work in our hearts. Give us the courage to get up off the mat. Give us the courage to get up even when we're scared that we might go down again. Give us the courage to get up by the power that is within us as believers through your Holy Spirit. Help us to get up off the mat, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.